0: Thanks, Jenny Lynn. My name is Dan Song, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's good to be together on this Sunday morning. Uh, we've been looking at lessons on archaeology over the last two chapters, in chapters four and five. And it's not archaeology as we would probably think, but it's a play on words. As some of you already have, if you've been following or tracking with us over the last two weeks, it's about the lessons or study. Of the Ark of the Covenant that represents who God is, right? If you remember, the Ark was this wooden box covered in gold, and on top of the Ark was this these two cherubim, these angels with their wings spread out, and in between there, on top of the Ark, was this special presence of God. And so, more than like anything, this represented God's presence for the people of God, so that they might know He is present. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're here for the first time, and this is maybe uh, you're checking us out, we've been looking over the last two weeks, and just to summarize where we are today, basically what happened was the people of God went to war against the Philistines, their arch nemesis. And what happens is they lose in the first battle, and so they think if they brought this ark, God's presence, to the battlefield, that God would have to deliver them with a win. But God disappoints them. God will not be treated like a lucky rabbit's foot. He will not be manipulated. And he would rather disappoint them than to see them actually win. Why? So that he could have an authentic relationship. And we saw that in chapter 4. We saw how God disappoints them and they get slaughtered. But not only do they get slaughtered, but the Ark of the Covenant is taken captive. And the Philistines now have God, Yahweh, Israel's God, with them. What did we learn last week? Last week we saw how God is second to none. And as God is in the land of Philistia, what happens? God doesn't need his Israelites. But that God is self-sufficient. He is second to none. And what does he do? He destroys their God, the Philistine God, Dagon. He cuts off his head. He cuts off his arms or his hands. And not only does he conquer their God, but he also punishes the Philistines and brings judgment on them. How? Through tumors. Maybe hemorrhoids, maybe the bubonic plague. We don't know what it was, but they are afflicted. They are, they suffer. And what do they do? They play a, a game of hot potato. It goes from one city to the next to the next. And finally, at the end of chapter 5, what do they do? They realize we can't, we can't have God here with us, the God of Israel. We need to send it back. And that's where we enter into chapter 6 and what Jenny Lynn just read for us. And what we're going to see is that not only is, a, it, not only is God a God who will not be manipulated, not only is God second to none, but in our study of archaeology, what we will see this morning is God is absolutely holy. Holy. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at chapter 6. So let me just pray for us as we get started this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are holy. But yet, like Jason reminded us as he led us in worship this morning, that you are also our Father. And so, Lord, I pray that through your words alone this morning, you would speak to us, transform us, remind us of who you really are on your terms, so that we might be able to worship you. And not only worship, but be transformed as we live our lives for you this morning. So do that good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this topic of God who is holy, I want to ask you a question. If someone right now stepped into this sanctuary through those two doors that you would be in awe of, like you'd be mesmerized, your jaw would drop, who would that person be this morning? Who would that person be for you? I asked one person this morning or earlier this week, and he said Aaron Rodgers. And I'm like, I'm a Bears fan, dude. You cannot say Aaron Rodgers. I would kick a ball of cheese into his face on purpose. But, I mean, it might be an athlete for you, right? Like, for me, I thought of Michael Jordan immediately. I've never seen him. I've never been in his presence. I've gone to games. But, like, to be that close to him, I will be in awe. Maybe for others, it's presidents, former presidents that have gone before us where because of the office they hold, you would be in awe. For others of you, it might be celebrities, Uh, For I know my two girls, they would be in awe if Olivia Rodrigo stepped through those doors. It might be other celebrities, I don't know, like Tom Hanks. Or you think about some musicians like Bob Dylan, Aretha Franklin, Bono. These people that would come in through these doors and for you personally, you would be in awe, be in their presence. You would get nervous. Your hands and palms would start sweating. You'd be super self-conscious, wondering how you're acting, what you look like. Do I have anything in my teeth? You'd be so self-aware because someone that is so uh, held in revere or in reverence would just cause you to have so much, so much nerves or nervousness in your own heart and body. Well, here in the story that we will look at we see that God is this person who has this reverence and awe that is deserving. Not just of some celebrity, but if we were to walk into this room as we worship together, is there this awe and reverence that we have of this God who calls us into worship this morning? And here these Israelites ask sort of this question that we're looking at. And they ask it in verse 20. And the question is this. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And that's the question we want to answer this morning. Who is able to stand before a holy God? And we're going to answer this in two different ways. And the first answer to this question of who is able to stand before a holy God, it's no one no one is able to stand before a holy god and we see that here with the philistines but also the israelites ironically let's look at the philistines first now remember there a game of hot potato has ensued like they they realize god's holiness and his transcendence and his reverence how by judgment the the plagues that have just brought so much suffering upon the people of God. And so because of all of the suffering that they are inflicted with, and death as well, what do they do? They get that ark away from them as far as as they can. So it goes from Ashdod, to Gad, to Ekron. And with each city, they don't want it because they realize this God that they know very little about, they don't know much about this Israelite God. They've heard stories about Egypt and the Israelites, being delivered by Moses and Pharaoh. But other than that, they don't know anything other than this God is second to none and that He is truly holy. And so what do they do? They want this thing as far away from them as possible. And so they finally decide they need to send this thing back to Israel after seven months of torture and torment. And in those, in, as they decide to send it back, they, they actually confer with the, the, their own priests. Five priests representing these five major cities in Philistia. And they go, what should we do? And these priests of Philistia say, you know what we do? We need to offer them a guilt offering to their God, Yahweh. And what do they come up with? It should actually make you laugh and giggle because here's what they decide. They say our guilt offering is going to be five golden tumors or maybe five golden hemorrhoids. I mean, these things that are absolutely nasty and disgusting, we're going to make replicas of that, a model of these diseases, and send it to their God as a, as a guilt offering. And not just five tumors, but they also send five golden mice that probably maybe represented the bubonic plague, of swelling over their bodies and their lymph nodes enlarging. And in places that probably we don't even wanna think about this morning. But this is the guilt offering that they offer their people uh, to Yahweh, this God that they know very little about. But before they load up the box with the golden tumors and the golden mice, before they put the ark on the cart. They come up with one last-ditch effort to make sure that this God truly is second to none and powerful and holy. You know what they do? They test God. They say, let's hitch up the cart and the box with the ark and these five golden tumors and mice, and let's put on two female cows who have never been yoked. They've never been trained to pull a cart. And they're also nursing calves. And so what should these these cows do? They should naturally go back to their cows, break off from the cart, and go nurse their babies. But if supernaturally these cows go back to Israel, then we know the hand of God was there and that He is truly holy. He is truly second to none. And we need this God, this holy God, as far away from us as possible. And that's what they do. And where does this, This cart go, the cows deliver the ark and this guilt offering straight to Israel, to the city of Beth Shemesh. Now think about this question that we're asking. Who is able to stand before this holy God? The Philistines say nobody. None of us, not even Dagon, can stand before this holy God. Nor can we. And they want God as far away from them as possible. They understand His, rever- His holiness, His transcendence. And they say, we need to get this thing as far away from us, us as possible. But what's really interesting also is that they include a guilt offering. The Philistines had no concept of a guilt offering. And yet because of their humanity, because we truly in our Christian faith believe that God is the God of the universe, that inside within them, they knew that to appease this holy transcendent God, they needed to offer a guilt offering to be able to appease and get rid of the guilt that they had, that they offended this God, Yahweh. You know, I think about that, and I think we're not that different. Whether you're religious, whether you are secular, Whether you're atheist, agnostic, you might have a different religion that you hold to. All of us have guilt that we have to deal with. And we all handle it in different ways. Some of us just ignore our guilt, right? We try to deny it and push it as far away from us as possible. Flannery O'Connor, a great author who wrote Wise Blood, with this character, Motes, talks about how to avoid sin is to avoid Jesus. Or to avoid Jesus, you avoid sin. And we all have guilt of the things that we've done, things that have been done to us. And how do we do it? We just ignore it. Some of us are workaholics. Some of us deal with substance abuse. And at the heart of the matter is because we have so much guilt in our own hearts and in our minds that the only way to do it is to ignore it and push it aside. For others of us, what do we do? We try to self-improve whether through knowledge, whether through becoming a better person, right? And one of the things that I think is, has been on the forefront over the last few years is a Black Lives Matter movement. Now, you know here at this church, we hold very strongly to the point that black lives do matter. And there are things that need to be done. But what's really interesting, as I say that, though, is that who has been at the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movements? Majority culture, millennials, Gen Zs. Why? Because to deal with the guilt of what has happened in America for centuries, what do you do? You become woke. You read. You attend every conference. You are at the front so that you might show that you have arrived. I am woke and I know so that you can deal with the guilt that's going on. And what is that? That's self-improvement. That's self-knowledge to continue to attain more and more so that I can deal with the guilt that is truly deeply embedded in my heart. And that's what we do. And whatever it is and however way we deal with our guilt... Guess what it does ultimately? It costs every single one of us, financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It comes at the cost of self to be able to deal with the guilt that we have, that each and every single one of us has to deal with, whether you're religious or irreligious. And it's never good enough. These Philistines, it was not sufficient, their guilt offering. And so what we see here is that in this question of who is able to stand before holy God, the Philistines recognize we can't. This God is truly transcendent. He is other. And we need to not only push him away, we need to offer something to appease our guilt. How about the Israelites? What do the Israelites do? Well, they see the cattle coming, right? They hear the noise of the cow lowing, which is like, I had to look it up. But lowing is sort of this moo and like being in distress and being angry. And so here are these Israelites in Beth Shemesh who are reaping the wheat and harvesting. And they see cows come in and they're like, what are cows coming for? And they see the ark and they run to the ark and they rejoice because God has returned. Yahweh has returned. The ark of God has come back to the land to their people. And so what do they do? Naturally, they, they, they bring their axes, they break up the wood of the cart, they create an offering or a sacrifice, an altar, and they kill the cow, cows, and they offer a sacrifice to the Lord, thanking God that the ark has returned to Israel. But there's a turn of events that you probably remember in this story that Jenny Lynn read. As they worship and as they offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, God strikes down 70 of them. Why? We actually don't know. But these weren't just regular men. These were priests. Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city. And that's why you hear and read these words Levites in this city. And these Levites should have known how to handle the ark of God. They they were instructed in Leviticus and in Numbers of the ways in which God or the people of God were supposed to handle the ark because this was God's presence, His holiness. And yet, how do they handle it? Well, obviously not the way that God had instructed. This was God's mercy to His people. This is the way you handle my presence, my holiness. And if you do these things, you will live. But they didn't. We see that the Israelites looked at or looked in the ark. The ark was always supposed to be covered. And so whether it wasn't covered or if they uncovered it or they did something that God always had instructed them not to do, they did it. And because they handled God's presence, the ark, with no deference, with no reverence, just casually, what, do they, what happens? God strikes down 70 of these men because of the way they mishandled the Ark of God. Everything they did was wrong. Isn't it interesting? The, Israel, the Philistines who are pagans, who knew hardly anything about God, understood His holiness. The people of God, Levites nonetheless, they treat God casually, without any reverence as if it didn't matter. And what happens? They are struck down. And as they're struck down, that's why they ask this question, who is able to stand before a holy God? And what do they do? They act just like the Philistines. They want this ark and God as far away from them as possible because guess, what's the, guess what the second question they ask is? Did you catch that? It's not only who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, And to whom shall he go up away from us? It's just as much of a plan of action as it is a question. They want God as far away from them as possible. Just like the Philistines. God's own people cannot stand before this God, this Holy One. You see, we do this too. We treat God nonchalantly, without any reverence. You know, he's my best buddy. He's my friend. As one commentator says, we treat him with contemptuous familiarity. I liked that. Contemptuous familiarity. How I read that is that we can basically do with God as we please. He's my homie. He's my personal assistant. And whatever I want from him, I get. And he's just familiar to us. I remember Keller shared an illustration of when he went to a camp back in the early 70s. And this is what his camp counselor told him or tried to explain and convey who God was. Imagine, imagine the, the thickness of this paper, right? The thickness or thinness of this paper represents how many miles it is from here to the moon. It would take 70 feet A a stack of paper 70 feet high for us to be able to go from the earth to the nearest star. 70 feet. That's how far and great us to the next star, visible star is. But then on top of that, imagine the diameter of our galaxy. It would take a stack of 310 miles of paper to be able to even understand the diameter of our galaxy. And a galaxy, our galaxy is just a speck of dust compared to the entire universe that God has created. And this is what she says when she talks to Tim Keller into the camp. She asks this question She says, Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? The God of creation, the God of the universe who holds all things together. And yet we, as absurd as it sounds to treat this God as a personal assistant, we do that. He's so familiar to us that even when we come and worship together, we don't understand the awe and holiness and transcendence that we come into as God invites us to worship Him. We have more awe for just a celebrity coming into this church building than it is the God who invites us into his presence. And there's so many ways in which we do that. I know some of us are seminarians here. or Maybe you're in some sort of ministry. I'm guilty of this. Every single week I preach, this word of God is so familiar to me that there is this contempt. I treat it like anything else because it has become so familiar, so regular. Do I understand this is God's words alone and he has called me to preach it to you? Or for seminarians, we just talk about theology, we talk about God, but we don't actually sit and understand and revel in the holiness and transcendence of God and what that actually means to me. Maybe you're a layperson here. And I think we do this in the, in the ways in which we cherry pick and we choose what we like about God. And the other things that we don't like about God, well, I'm just going to ignore it. I'll rip it out of my Bible. And I'll just focus on the things that, where God can actually deliver for me. Things that make sense for me. Those are the things that I like about God. And so I'll just, I'll just choose to focus on those things. But here, God comes with his own terms. And are we willing to come under and sit and see how holy and great and majestic our God truly is? This is the call for us to see, do we understand His transcendence, His holiness? And, and these Israelites, because they finally understand how holy is, what do they do? They want to send Him away. They want to send them away just like the Philistines. Instead of asking the first question, who can stand before a holy God? And sitting there and self-examining, what do they do? They immediately say, Well, I can't, I can't stand before a holy God. We need this thing as far away from us as possible. You see, what would it look like for us to examine our own hearts, to search our own hearts? and ask the question, what does it look like to come before a holy God, rather than just push Him away like the Israelites did, like the Philistines did? Well, here's your answer. The second, not only is it nobody, but secondly, here's the hope. There is one. There is one who can stand before a holy God. And we actually get hints of that with the question that they ask. Isn't it interesting? They say, who? Who is able to stand before the Lord, the Holy God? And it hints at a person. And that person is the Sunday school answer this morning, brothers and sisters and children. It is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can stand before the Holy God. And that's actually really good news for us. Do you know why? Because what I didn't tell you about the Ark of the Covenant was that it was placed in the Holy of Holies, in the most inner part of the tabernacle. And no one could enter into the Holy of Holies except for one, the high priest. But not any time. Once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it came with many terms and many conditions. But it was God's mercy. When you entered into that place, it was literally God's presence. And so when you entered, you needed to be as clean and pure. And there was all these things and rituals that the high priest had to do once a year to go into God's presence. No one could do it except for him. And here it points to Christ. Christ is the only one who is able to stand before the holy God. And not only is he able to stand and become the high priest, what he does is he sheds his blood for us. So that for those who place their faith in Christ, his body broken as we come to the table, his blood shed, he invites us because of our because of our faith in him, because of our union to Christ. Now we are invited into the presence of God. That's why we're able to pray to this holy God, our Father in heaven. That's why when we come to church on Sunday mornings, we're able to actually worship and respond to this holy, transcendent God who invites us to worship, not because of anything we do, not because of the terms and conditions we meet. We don't meet any of the terms and conditions that God places on His people to be able to stand before holy God but it's because of Jesus who actually met those terms and conditions himself. He took on the gift. Like we're saying, he paid for it all so that we can actually come into the presence of God. And not only is it God, Jesus alone, who can stand, but we now can say everyone who has placed their faith in Christ can stand before this holy God. And live, and not only live, but experience the love of God because of Jesus, his son, who bled and died and suffered and met all the terms and conditions that the Father had so that we might be able to experience the lavish love and presence of God where we don't have to send him away. He draws near. It's not just a transcendent versus imminent. It's not just a holy versus a near God. but We get it all. Because of Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel. We actually get a glimpse of that as I close with a story in the gospel. You see, Jesus takes his three beloved friends up to the mountain. And up on the mountain, Jesus transfigures. And Jesus is described as his face looking like the sun bright as the sun, and his clothes white as light. And can you imagine the disciples staring at Jesus, all of a sudden transfigured into this holy presence. And not only that, then as Jesus is transfigured, this bright cloud comes into the, uh, above Jesus. And this bright cloud says this. He says, where is it? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And you know what happens to the disciples? They fall flat on their face. And the the way Matthew 17 describes it, they were terrified. That is holiness. When you see Jesus in all of his majesty and holiness and his transcendence, you are terrified. You are afraid. But guess what Jesus does? he comes to his three best friends and he touches them and he says, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You see, this is the good news. A holy God who we should be terrified of invites us into his presence and we could draw near because of Jesus' work for us. So what does that mean? It means spend time self-examining your heart, search your heart, and come to grips with a God who isn't just our Father, but He is holy. And because of His Son, we can fellowship with Him all the days of our lives, so that we might experience true forgiveness, true healing, and a true relationship where we don't have to try to conjure up any sort of guilt offerings like the Philistines. Come to him, our holy God, who loves us and draws near to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for your son who didn't demand us to meet all the terms and conditions. We fail every single day, but Lord, your son met every single term and condition for us. So Lord, help us to be like the disciples, to look up and see Jesus, the one who is holy and transcendent, but also the one who touches us and says, have no fear. So every single day we might be reminded of your closeness, of your intimacy with us. Do that now, even as we come to the table. Strengthen us. Give us the grace. Help us to be freed of the guilt that rides us every single day so that we might know and look to Jesus and thank you for all that you have done for us so that as we eat and drink together, Lord, we might be able to draw near to you and see you for who you are on your terms. Do that now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.